Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, September 21st, 2020. On the show today, news and photos. In our main segment, Jim talks about a pre-Disneyland opening memo from C.V. Wood to Walt Disney. Let's get started by bringing in the man who grew up just a stone's throw away from where all those people had mysterious head injuries. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, It's going well. Len, have I ever told you about my head injury, the one that happened while I was in the military? (laughs) No, go ahead. (laughs) Does this go a long way towards explaining a lot of things, Jim? Oh, yes, Len. So (laughs) I had literally just gone to the base newspaper and I was trying to impress my new editors there. So, and they're opening the school. So we're going to do a story about, you know, the on-base schools are opening. My editor goes, we need a picture. But we're going, you know, the press today. So it's like, not a worry. I grab the official government vehicle. I drive over to the school. I pull into the parking lot. And I hammer on the brakes, throw open the door, step out of the car to take the picture. But the thing is, the car door continues its momentum, hits the side of the vehicle, and then bounces back and hits me in the head. (laughs) Oh, so it didn't have a a stop on it. It just kept opening. Just kept opening. Okay, so I get the picture. I go back to the base newspaper. And my editor's like, you're bleeding. (laughs) And it's like, oh, it's nothing. And it's like, no, there's literally blood running down your face. We need to send you to the base hospital. I end up in the emergency room on a table, and they drape you over with a a cloth with a hole in it so they can do the stitching. And so the doctor's, you know, talking with me, and it's like, so uh, how did you get this injury? It's like, well, I got my head caught in a car door. He has to step away from the table because he's laughing so hard. (laughs) Just say <laughs> so now the VA recognizes that, you know, I was wounded in action. <laughs> I was going to say, did you get a purple heart from that? <laughs> More of a, a bruised forehead. I mean, at least you were enthusiastic about your first assignment. And that's what's important. And speaking of heads, Len, you have your camera on and oh my God, I your hair. Do. I started to condition. So it's uh, it's got a little bit more volume in it. A little more volume? (laughs) A little more volume. (laughs) There are people at NASA who are arranging for satellites to change their paths. It's not even as high as it gets. Like, uh, (laughs) later on tonight, it'll be, like, twice as high, yeah. Okay, well. Thank you. (laughs) Moving on. All right, let's do a shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Jim, another record week for Bandcamp subscribers, and thank you all very much. I hope you're enjoying our walkthroughs of the parks. Coming up, Jim and I have Bandcamp exclusive shows on everything from alternate concepts for Epcot rides to how Ringling Brothers and Disney collaborated on a special event in the parks. And thanks to new subscribers Jeff F., Melinda E., and Spacey28, and longtime subscribers Blake D., Clemens I., and Jenny Furby. Jim, it's a little-known fact that the London scene in Peter Pan's flight contains an accurate real-time map of city traffic, and these are the folks who maintain that map in a little room inside the attraction. In fact, if you listen closely, you can sometimes hear Jenny say, Oi, the Duncans are headed to the shops! As they rush to get another little car onto the streets. True story. Oh, that is so much more appealing than the bicycle chain story. So we're going to go, go with that one. Yes. On to the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. Ooh, another one. Okay, good. On last week's show, we said that it was possible that some theme parks would stay open later around the holidays to take advantage of the lunch and dinner crowd. Lo and behold, the day after that show came out, Epcot announced it would be shifting its park hours to 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. 
rather than 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. beginning the first week of November. So that's right after daylight savings time ends, as you noted on the last show. Mm -hmm. So it'll give Epcot another hour of operating after sunset. Jim, you've got to think this is both the lunch dinner crowd and to showcase some holiday decorations at night, right? Got to be. Got to be. Yeah, I think so, too. I think some of that stuff looks uh, looks much better at night. Mm -hmm. In other news, Disney Cruise Line extends its closure through December 6th. We heard rumors that some of the crew was being told of a possible Thanksgiving sailing. That is sadly not going to happen. I also booked a December 1st cruise out of Galveston, which also isn't going to happen. I'm, I'm sad to not be on a cruise ship. I'm not that sad about having to miss Galveston, which I don't think is a great port. But Jim, from DCL's perspective, I think they've got to be hoping that those Christmas cruises can still happen because those are the most expensive sailings of the year. It's a chance for them to make some decent money in an otherwise bad year. What do you think? Anything at this point. I mean, I don't know if you saw the story this morning. I forget which of the uh, cruise lines it is, but they're selling, I want to say, 18 ships. Carnival across all of its lines is yeah. Uh, selling eight. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is a tough time for that industry. And yeah, anything that would help you getting them Christmas cruises going would be great. Yeah, I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Also, Disney said uh, they confirmed that the Wish, the uh, the next ship in the fleet, is delayed. But I don't think they said how long. So I know that the uh, the first cruise wasn't supposed to be until 2022. And now it's yeah. going to be later. And then, yeah. yeah, that's understandable. I don't know if you saw the actual official statement, but they explained that the delay was due to the supply chains, that they yeah. could not get the materials necessary to finish building the boat, which that's an interesting <laughs> explanation. Yeah, the supply chain to build a boat is is literally from around the world. So even the smallest disruption in that throws off everybody's schedule because things mm -hmm. are built in sequence. So if something oh, early yeah. in the sequence is off, it display it displaces everything later in the sequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Okay. Speaking of moving around, Disneyland and other California theme parks are having discussions with the state about opening up again soon. Jim, have you seen this? I love the polite term you use there, land discussions. <laughs> right. So they actually came out and said that they, they appealed to the governor, to, to, uh, to Governor Newsom, to let them reopen. And the governor has said in the last couple of days that they're going to have discussions with the theme parks soon on that. What do you think is the holdup on the state side? Governor Newsom has erred on the side of caution right from the get-go with COVID. And I just think it, his concern is we reopen these things. What happens if we have a, a second flare-up? And so he's- right. contact he's, tracing. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I know it's it's a balancing act. You have tens of thousands of people who work at these parks who are waiting to go back to work. And it's just sort of like the benefit of people back on the payroll, weighed against the fact that- It's a risk, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's hope these discussions happen quickly and- they can settle on some way of getting these parks open. I think one of the other um, issues that Newsom has to be thinking about is Disneyland is, again, the world's largest regional theme park. So mm -hmm. if there is uh, a spreading event in California, virtually all of the people who would be infected also live in California, which would yeah. make California's numbers you know, go up in addition to other many bad things. Whereas in Walt Disney World, if DeSantis is looking at this the same way, mm -hmm. the cold calculation would be, well, most of these people are coming from out of state. Therefore, Florida's numbers wouldn't wouldn't look that bad, right? My gift to Ohio. There we go. <laughs> exactly. You know. Whereas Newsom, uh, I'm not saying that, that this is the right way to think about things. I'm saying it's a political, it's part of the political calculus. Mm -hmm. 
that elected officials go through. And I, I am 100% convinced that happens. So. Mm. Anyway, hopefully uh, hopefully they get open soon. I think uh, you know, if there's one thing that we can take out of you know, Walt, Dis- the Walt Disney World being open now for two months, mm. there hasn't been a, a breakout that's been traced back to uh, any theme park in, in Orlando. So I think they're doing a fantastic job there. Mm. Yeah, give them credit. All right, Jim, another, uh, uh, Disney's filed another patent application, actually today, mm-hmm. that I wanted to, uh, to talk about. This one is called Gaze-Based Rendering for audience engagement. And the thing I wanted to, to point out here is the image that they're showing. Jimmy, you can see it on our show notes. We'll, uh, we'll include it in, in the show notes as well. Hmm. But it, uh, it's a bunch of people sitting on chairs in front of a very large television screen. And the idea is that there'll be hardware, hmm. computer hardware, in the computer screen that will figure out where your eyes are looking on the computer screen and then do something in that area that you're looking at. So Jim, for me, when I'm looking at this image, I'm thinking this is sort of the next generation of Turtle Talk with Crush. You're not wrong. Disney understands that what gets people through the front gate is its characters. And especially in a window of time like this, where character interaction is is somewhat problematic. I mean, I know you've talked very enthusiastically about the character cavalcades, which have just switched over to their Halloween theming. But something like this, where you could have a moment where you're actually interacting with an individual character, you yourself, and to be part of a a group dynamic where they use the example here of an elephant, a bunny, a frog, a giraffe, and some sort of lizard. I thought that was the Geico... uh... Gecko. <laughs> well, you know, you got to work that sponsor in somehow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, you can sit there and have an interaction with the yeah, character you, on screen, you know. Okay, so I didn't I didn't think of this when I was looking at the patent, but yeah. you bring up a good point here because the audience being shown here is not a theater full of people. Mm-hmm. It's three people. Yeah. So you could do character interactions but remotely. Mm-hmm. But with oh a small group, so this might be the this might might, might be the pandemic answer to character <laughs> greetings. You know what this makes me think of at that moment in Muppet Vision 3D where I'm Waldo, the spirit of 3D, and it's like everyone thinks I'm talking to them, but I'm only talking to you. Talking to you, you. exactly. <laughs> and oh. so this would actually finally deliver on that show moment. <laughs> it only took us thirty years. Twenty thirty years. It's fine. It's fine. We're here. These things take time. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of in-park things, we have a listener questions, Jim. This one's from Steve, mm-hmm. who writes, How much does the lack of shows, parades, and meet-and-greets affect wait times? Can you estimate what percentage of a daily, par- uh, daily park's attendance is being entertained by one of those attractions? I'm thinking that Walt Disney World would be hard-pressed to increase park capacities without these types of attractions unless they want to negatively affect guest experience. This would also carry over to the difficulty in opening up additional resorts. So it's a good point. Uh, You don't want to open up additional resorts if you're going to put people in those hotel rooms who then can't get into the parks. That's definitely uh, bad customer service. In terms of um, shows, parades, and meets and greets, the, uh, the shows and parades themselves attract many thousands of people per day. And if you're talking about something like the studios where they're running Beauty and the Beast, the Indiana Jones show and Disney Junior and things like that. If those things are running simultaneously as they would on a, you know, a very busy day, you're talking about five, maybe 10,000 people an hour being entertained on those things. And for a park like the studios, that's a considerable percentage of the total number of people who are in the park. So if you think about 10,000 people an hour, the park can handle maybe 60, 65,000 people. That's 15, 16% of the people in the park in a show at any given time. 
So when they're not there, obviously the wait time goes up dramatically. So just as an example, I calculated uh, around the time that Galaxy's Edge was opening that exclusive of the shows, you could have about 18 to 24,000 people in line maximum at Hollywood Studios at any given time. Actually, I think that includes the shows. So if you take out the 7,000 to 10,000 people who are serviced by the shows, that's basically a third of the, the park's capacity. So that would increase the wait times by at least that much more. So in the studios, for example, that would be one of the instances where there'd be an instance of the park being the most affected by not having shows and meets and greets. Meets and greets actually doesn't affect wait times at other attractions that much because even on the best day possible, imagine it takes you know 30 seconds to do a meet and greet. And 30 seconds is not very much time at all. My guess is it's more around 90 seconds per meet and greet. But at 30 seconds, you can only do 120 of those in an hour. So figure three or four people per group. That's maybe 360 to 480, you know, call it 450. 450 people an hour, that's basically uh, a water slide in terms of capacity, not very much at all. Now, Disney's got a bunch of those in the Magic Kingdom. They've got uh, both sides of the uh, Storybook Circus meet and greets. They've got two of those. They've got uh, a number of them in Fantasyland. You know, so if you've got five or six of them, it's still a couple thousand people an hour. But in a park as big as the Magic mm-hmm. Kingdom, it's basically negligible in terms of wait times. So, but still, it's it's the shows and parades mm-hmm. that they that they miss. Now, parade obviously in the Magic Kingdom, that's going to draw so many people in that'll actually lower the wait times on the edge attractions, the attractions in Tomorrowland, the attractions in Frontierland. As people go to see those parades, and that's definitely a noticeable effect. So mm-hmm. you don't see the the three p.m. dip, for example, in Space Mountain that mm-hmm. you would normally see when the parade is running. Have you seen the holiday ad campaign that Disney has now for Orlando? No, I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the one that um, the Florida Tourism is doing. Mm-hmm. What's the one that Disney's doing? It is happy people, all of them wearing their masks, but they're doing like selfies of Dumbo flying behind them with the castle. But again, it's all always hammering home the mask theme. It's to a music track for Hi Ho. And just stressing mm. that, you know, that this is a t- really the time you want to go to Disney World for these special holiday offerings. But completely on message about we are wearing masks out here, but you can still have fun. Uh, but I have to wonder, you know, something like the Castle Light Show. But, you know, get a wonder about that schedule. And I would promote the heck out of that on a like a 30-second video ad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you could do the Snope on yep. Main Street. Mm-hmm. You could do the Castle Projection Show. Mm-hmm. Everyone would be wearing masks. Mm-hmm. You do the Cavalcades. And then you just do like 10 seconds or 15 seconds of... Uh, maybe 12 seconds would compromise, of, you know, families on classic rides, you know, mm-hmm. Space Mountain, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, right? In Fantasyland with the castle behind you. Half of our readers could put together this this ad with basically <laughs> with, with with video they've already got on their phones and, yeah, a, and a, an example yeah. of pro, and a copy of Pro Tools, right? We could mm-hmm. all put together this ad. I mean, it mm-hmm. basically sells itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, here's an email from Glenn. And uh, and Jim, I want your input on this because I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Glenn writes, I'd like the Disney dish to cover the world cruise offered in the 1970s on the Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake. In addition to details of the side wheel steamboats used and the eventual addition of the stop at Treasure slash Discovery Island, it'd be interesting to cover proposed Walt Disney World projects discussed in the cruise's narration. For example, two projects I've never heard discussed anywhere but on the cruise. 
or a proposal to set up a nightly luau on one of the Seven Seas Lagoon Islands, and the idea of an international shopping mall that would be built between the Contemporary Resort and the Magic Kingdom. Jim, I've never heard of any of this. You've seen art for these two things, the Oceala-class sidewinders that were only really in service in the 70s at the Walt Disney World Resort. There was the Ports of Call and I want to say the Southern Seas. And and what was really great about these two boats is at night, they basically pulled them out of service. And what they do is a cocktail cruise. Remember, one of my very first trips to Walt Disney World, very poor planning on my part. I booked passage on this thing and realized very quickly, it's like, oh, I am surrounded by couples. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) The only guy. But yes, as you went around the water and traveling from uh, Seven Seas Lagoon over to Bay Lake, there was this narration where they they pointed out, this is where, you know, we're going to build the Thai hotel. And this is where we're going to eventually build the Venetian resort. And over on this side is where we go to, you know, eventually, you know, the domes of Persia will rise. But the thing that Glenn is talking about, the shopping mall, mid-70s, they had broken Epcot down into its component parts. So, for example, the Walt Disney World Showcase was actually going to be built in the parking lot for the Magic Kingdom, with the notion that the one monorail station there could serve these two separate entities. So you've seen the models and or images of this thing. It's the two concentric half circles, Len, where, you know, a courtyard in the center courtyard of nations. But to make sure this thing could actually pay for itself out beyond the ticket and transportation center, because at this point, they were on their third set of test footings for the Venetian, and each time they pounded the footers into the ground, they just sank out of sight. And they realized, <laughs> you know, we cannot actually build anything near the water, but there's still a nice chunk of property right behind that. And it's like, what if we were to create a shopping mall you know, the idea is that the shopping mall would, at an angle, head over to Perimeter Road, over toward the Contemporary. So, huh. in theory, you, you arrive at the Ticket and Transportation Center, and then it's a question of, okay, where do you want to go? If you want to go over to the Magic Kingdom, hop on a monorail or grab a ferry boat. If you want to check out Walt Disney World Showcase, it's right here. Just walk on in. If, on the other hand, you want to go over to the shopping mall, maybe get a meal, just hang to the right there. And, oh, by the way, if you want to continue on, you're really, well, once you're inside the mall, you're within walking distance to the contemporary. So this entire chunk of property they were looking to build on. And one of the other reasons that they were looking to build on this chunk of property as opposed to the other 43 square miles, this is in the middle of the Arab oil embargo. Oh, yeah. And it's just sort of like, I don't want to have to build any more roads. I don't want to have to build an extension of the monorail system right now. We have all this infrastructure right here. We were clearly not building that Venetian hotel. So let's make use of the land we already prepped to do something and never move forward. But yeah, Glenn heard about a lot on his particular cruise on one of those Oceanic Sidewinders. He heard a lot of talk about things that never got built, which is kind of I sad. Would l- I'd love to hear the audio from this. Oh, I yeah. Wonder if the, I wonder if there's examples of it hmm. online. Right. Let's dig around. I did a quick search while you were uh, while you were talking. I didn't find anything. In fact, I couldn't find even an image of the uh, International Shopping Mall 
concept. I'd love to see uh, let's see art from that. Huh. This piece of art kept getting reused over and over and over again because it was, hey, this is the, the Scottish street of our international shopping area. And it's a guy in a kilt and a thatched hut, but also a very bad 1970s mall ceiling. Drop ceiling with the styrofoam boards. There yeah, we go. Yeah. There we go. That's it. Ooh, this is, I love the theming here. All right. Here's an email from Maria mm-hmm. who says, uh, I want to thank you so much for your advice that you just need to get the right person on the phone for individual annual passholder issues. Our passes lapsed and I was told by ticketing that I couldn't renew, but VIP passholder told me to call. The person on the line reached out to a magical service team was able to give authority to change our renewal date after about an hour on the phone. The new date means we have passes through 2021. Who is this service team? And what does this mean for pass sales in 2021? Are they working with pass holders individually and just dealing with renewals? Or do you expect general sales again? So Jim, mm-hmm. a super special service team. First of all, let me just say that uh, uh, you know we're helping individual pass holders one person at a time because that's what we do here mm-hmm. on the show Jim we're, we're givers right there but a super special service team first of all not something you want to say with a lisp uh, do they have capes I, I hope they have capes if, uh, I, that, if I'm designing the uniforms they have capes but let me just let me just preface this by saying mm-hmm. I have never had any luck at all getting a consistent answer on very specific ticket questions from any Disney theme park I've ever been to Jim you and I we were both in Disneyland one time. We both had annual passes that started in the same day, and we wanted to convert them to Disneyland passes. Mm-hmm. Our passes were literally within minutes of being as old as uh, the same age, right? Mm-hmm. We, bought them, we bought them both on the same day in Walt Disney World. We went to Disneyland, and we were both charged two completely different amounts yeah. <laughs> to, to upgrade those passes. And I have no idea. Like, I, I've just never seen any consistency. I think I think the rules are interpreted like uh, like traveling in basketball. Like it's... One of those things that's open to interpretation. If I remember correctly, you did say, Mother, may I? <laughs> Simon says. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so is the super special team basically the team who's like, who gets all of the hard questions? Yeah. And there's nothing but hard questions. Yeah. Our listener, Brian H., sent me a fairly lengthy email about he called, reached out to Disney. He arranged to have his annual pass canceled. Oh, right, yeah. And they assured him. And then, you know, the bill came in the next month and they were still there. And it just sort of like between the the park closures and COVID, Disney guest relations has never been hammered in this way. And given that they are trying in all different directions to do as much guest recovery as they can, there's not a consistent response or effort. And do we give them an A for effort or what, a B? What yeah, are we doing a, a, a for effort. I think mm-hmm. the uh, the problem is that they uh, they don't want to build a computer system mm-hmm. to handle uh, these things because they're anticipating that the issue will go away in a couple of months and that, by go. the time that they have the mm-hmm. computer system done. So they're relying on individual cast members to do it. I guess is that they're circulating memos like every day saying, here are the new policies for doing this. And also, probably it's up to the individual cast members to figure out how to make the system do what they want, which is probably true for anyone who's ever worked a retail computer system before. Just 10 minutes ago in the show, you were looking at a patent that clearly Imagineering was involved in. And yeah. here's the next generation of character interaction. I don't think this problem's going away anytime soon. We need to put together a solution. So it's like, you know, you have this diametrically opposed take on what's going to happen with COVID or coronavirus. And just I long for the days when Disney supposedly had 
this master plan, and they were all <laughs> marching together in the same direction. I think whatever they're they're doing in World though uh, is going to pale in in effort mm-hmm. to what they're going to have to do for Disneyland annual pass holders because there are so many more of them, and they're they're so very specific about what they want. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens uh, there. Anyway, I'm glad it worked out for Maria though. Okay. All right. Here's a note from Trevor from Saskatoon. He says, hi, Jim and Len. Thank you so much for the weekly podcast. I enjoyed all the fun information and history. I recently bought these items on a local garage sale website for $40 Canadian for everything. So I'm not a currency exchange expert. $40 Canadian, I think, is uh, $3.5 million US. That's about, that's about right. <laughs> that's roughly how Karen and Georgia do the math over at My Favorite Murder. So yeah, yeah, you're right, Len. Okay, keep moving. So he bought three things. A print of Walt Disney, mm-hmm. a postcard reply from Disney in 1962 mm-hmm. regarding an inquiry about the show The Horse Masters, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Disneyland The First Quarter Century book. And Trevor notes that on page 77 of the book, clearly illustrates the graphic scene from the Jungle Cruise that you, Jim, described on last week's podcast. And so, Jim, I've included the photo in the show notes. You'll have to tweet this out. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, Walt standing in the middle of the zebra scene (laughs) with the animals uh, feeding on it. And you're right. It looks much more intense. Yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. In fact, what's so funny is they've, they're they actually recycling in that scene. You can see the male lion with his mouth open. This is where they used to insert the zebra shank. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, they, they pulled him from the front of it to the to the back. The thing that, that kills me on this, and it's a great photo that Trevor said, did, yeah. is it, it still looks really barren in terms of landscaping. And there's trees and stuff in the background, but mm-hmm. where Walt... And his assistant is standing. Mm. It's basically concrete and sand. Holy cow, Len. Look past the guy in white. You see a, a woman with a blue shirt on. And yep. you can see just beyond there, yeah. there's a gentleman with a suit. I think that's Marty Scalar. Is it really? Can I remember Marty worked PR back in this day, these days. And oh. this was shot as part of a photo essay for National Geographic. And so Marty's in the background sort of like, all right, please, Walt, don't say anything on court. Yeah, yeah, we used to have a shank in this thing's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but people were grossed out by that. So we rearranged exactly. we, we it. Ah, the tourists didn't like it. So yeah, we got rid of it. Yeah, so now it's a sleeping zebra. You know, the, the lion's watching over a sleeping zebra. Great find there, Trevor. I uh, hadn't seen that before. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Thank you for sending it in. Jim, speaking of photos, mm-hmm. uh, this week's vintage Disney theme park image is Liberty Square and a drained Rivers of America from 1972. Why don't you tell us about this? First of all, this image comes from a loyal Disney Dish listener who asked not that we not use his name, but wanted to point out that his grandma. I know know why, too, because I don't think his grandmother was supposed to be in this park at this time. Could well be, but but yeah, From the you, photo. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned fall of '72, and we're looking at a drained rivers of America. As you look at this the image, you can see the haunted mansion with you know very with little no tre- trees around there it. You yeah. Go. Okay, and then as we move to the right, you can see the original boat dock for the Mike Fink keel boats, and finally right. in the foreground is the load unload for what was then known as the Admiral Joe Fowler Riverboat. But I want to direct your attention th- uh, from you know that dock across the water, or where there would be water, to the construction that's going on on Tom Sawyer's Island. Yeah, that's not, what, that's not where the, the boat dock is now. What's going on there? Magic Kingdom opens October 1971, and the boats, riverboat, Mike Finkielboat, 
went around the island, and there were some show scenes. I mean, they had the burning settler's cabin. Uh, they had the friendly Indian village. They had way too many plastic deer and moose who only their ears moved. But on the front part of the island, the, the part that was closest to Liberty Square and Frontierland, there was nothing. Tom Sawyer's Island was not an opening day attraction. It opened in 56. So Good. Magic Kingdom makes it through its first full summer of operation. Labor Day of 1972, they drain the rivers of America, but not before they first move the Joe Fowler and the Mike Fink keelboats out back to dry dock, and they get their first annual maintenance. Now it's time to build Tom Sawyer's Island, so it's like, okay, let's get out there and, and put in, you know, for example, what you're looking at there in this photograph, Len, that's them putting in the footers for Aunt Polly's, the quick service, or to me, the, oh, okay. yeah, on yeah, the yeah. counter service. But they went out there and they did all of the prep, and then it was a situation where it's like, okay, guys, we've got the foundations in, get every piece of wood that we're ever possibly going to use when it comes to building Harper's Mill and Fort Langdon, because <laughs> when the island, because yeah. once we flood this, you know, it's just like you know, and go over that list a couple of times because I don't want to be carrying this stuff out, taking it over to Tom's Landing and then trucking it across the river. But they reflood uh, the rivers of America in the late fall, just in time for the Christmas crowds, and then if you were in the park at that point. You could stand, you know, in Frontierland or stand in Liberty Square and look across the way and watch them building, you know, the buildings oh. on the island. And the construction workers were the very first folks to get to use the raft to go back and forth. Every morning they'd show up, they'd get on the raft, they'd go on over, you know, and work on the fort and work on the mill and all that. And they got it all done in time. In fact, it opened May 20th, 1973 just in time for the oil embargo. So it's like, woohoo, new attraction. Nobody came. Uh, you know, uh, Tom's Island is one of my favorite attractions in uh, the Magic Kingdom. And my sister Christina and I uh, went on it last month when we were mm -hmm. there together. And the thing that I always forget about is they, they've got a series of caves mm -hmm. that you can go through on Tom Sawyer Island. And I think for kids, they're super fun to explore. They're not particularly long. They're not particularly dark, um, but they're a good sort of introduction to that kind of theme park experience. And I, every time I, I go in them, I'm like, this is a nice little thing. It, I mean, the attraction does exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, the uh, when I was there, they, uh, they had made a number of paths mm -hmm. one way. Oh. One thing I found today, which makes me want to go back to Tom Sawyer's Island, is that evidently in the caves, in fact, I guess it, it's just as you're exiting the escape tunnel complex, there is supposedly a signature on the wall as if Walt Disney himself had signed it. There's just a WD. Really? That they put in when they opened this in 73. Okay. So this is the, so right now Fort Langhorn isn't open. At least mm -hmm. it wasn't open when I was there last month. Yep. Um, but it, it's the escape tunnel from Fort Langhorn that goes out and sort of to the right. Yep. Uh, to the left. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I've seen a photo of it. The problem is mm. I don't have any reference for where it is in the mouth. It looks like it, 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 again, it's got a natural lighting on it. So it suggests that it's just as you're coming out of the cave and it's at kid eye height. Oh, okay. Good hint. Okay. Evidently, it's the little kids who say, it's WD, Walt Disney was here. And it's like, well, no. But again, it's cool that it's there. So It's a nice, uh, nice sentiment. Yep. All right, Jim, how can people send us uh, these photos and the stories behind them? 
either give us notification through Twitter or if they want to reach out directly to me at Jim at Jim Hill Media. Our pal uh, Nathaniel B., the gentleman who got this all started, first he gave us 300 photos and now 200 more. So I, I have some digging to do there, but just like our listener's grandmother shot, I know other folks out there have some amazing photos and please send them along and, and we'll see what we can do. This one's fantastic. Uh, so you're going to tweet it out in time for the show? Yes, I am. Monday morning. Awesome. So. Good job. Okay. Good job. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim discusses this pre-opening Disneyland memo from C.V. Wood to Walt Disney himself. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. C.V. Wood, as we know, was the guy that Walt hired to lead the construction of Disneyland. And you say you've got a memo from him to Walt that was sent right before the opening of Disneyland. Tell us about that memo. First of all, where'd you get it? I got it from an issue of the Disneyland line. This was published in 1984, and they were coming up on the 29th anniversary of the opening of the park. And they dug out this memo, which was originally sent to Walt in June 2nd, 1955. So we are six and a half weeks out from the opening of the park line. And okay. right. it, it starts with the following represents the best estimate that can be obtained at this time regarding the status of individual sections of the park on opening day. So we start on Main Street, and see, the first thing CV wants to talk a lot about is the police station. This and the lost children's playground behind it will be complete. This, by the way, folks, if you know Disneyland, the uh, police station basically was between Town Hall and the fire station. So little okay. building right there. Walt's grandchildren once told me that what they loved about going to the park in the late 50s, early 60s is they'd get to stay overnight upstairs in the firehouse. And when grandma and grandpa were asleep, you know, they evidently slept late on, on you know, Saturdays and Sundays, the kids would sneak downstairs and then there's a perimeter road out behind the town hall and the fire station, the police station. But then directly on the other side of the road is the jungle for the Jungle Cruise. And so, oh, okay. so they would walk out the back door of the firehouse and go straight into the jungle and then stand there in the jungle and like stick their tongues out and waggle their ears at the now boatloads of tourists that are going by. <laughs> they look so real. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Now, just to step back to these lost children's playground, which is now in the same approximate area. So you're separated from your parents at Disneyland. Okay, the employee collects you and plants you out back in the lost children's playground. You know, while yeah, just stay here while we figure out what's what's going on, right? Okay, so you're there, you know, separated from your parents, and directly across the street on a 30-second cycle are roars and growls. And it's like, oh, kid, you're fine. All right. You know I mean? <laughs> You'll be safe here. <laughs> Look, I'll be back in 10 minutes. That's right. <laughs> so, I don't think, you know, this is the sort of thing that gets cured with, all right, kid, here's a plush. I mean, we're talking years and years of therapy. All right. What else, uh, what else is on Main Street in this memo? Worth noting here that, that CV tells Walt, Plaza and Hub Landscaping, if all goes according to plan, 
I think we can be fairly certain that both will be green by opening. Len, that is the most tepid assurance. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like, it's like, well, CV, who would you ask if things are going to according to plan? Isn't it your plan? Yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> On the last show, we were talking about how Walt actually wanted to do a moving sidewalk into Tomorrowland. That was going to be the big Megilla, you know, the wow right. moment that we were going to step off the hook and, and and be able to ride this moving sidewalk right down at the middle of Tomorrowland. And I mentioned that they decided we just can't do it. What's amazing about this memo, again, remember, it's June 2nd, Len, six and a half weeks before the park opened. So Tomorrowland, CV says to Walt, Moving sidewalk decision needed from the design group. It is critical if we are going to have this before opening. So six and a half weeks, the design hasn't been completed. No! Six and a half weeks ahead of time, let alone built. But here's the thing. It didn't go away, Lynn. I mean, as strange as it seemed, the technology actually eventually gets used in the mid-60s. Remember the sort of the moving walkway that took you from ground level up to the people mover? Yep. This was that that technology. Oh. When they were finally doing the new version of Tomorrowland, like, wait, that thing we could never afford and never get done. Okay, we can do it now. Now, second thing of Tomorrowland later that CV wants to tell Walt about. Fountains will be installed and will have jets, but it is questionable how playful they will be due to the lead time on heads. So they're waiting on pieces. Okay. But CV doesn't know that looming just a couple of days ahead the local plumbers oh, union yeah, yeah. is going to go on strike and they don't resolve their issues with management till 10 days before Disneyland opens and so at this point never mind about playful fountains walt has to actually make a decision do you want working toilets or water fountains cuz the, the plumbers union only has you know enough time before the park opens to put in one and walt just made kind of the sophie's choice and it's like well we Toilets. We need toilets. You know, and if people get thirsty when they're in the park, they can buy a Pepsi and that'll make Pepsi-Cola happy and they're sponsoring a golden horseshoe. Now, speaking of bathroom-related stuff, there's a famous story from the opening day of Disneyland. There was a huge traffic backup on the five coming to the park plan. What ended up happening is you had a lot of people, the polite way to put this is they're under pressure. <laughs> a lot of the gentlemen and their small boys, as soon as they pulled into the then only dirt, I mean, they didn't have the money for asphalt, so it's only a dirt parking lot. You know, they hurriedly pull in, they, they park the car, and then they leap outside and start peeing, you know, openly. <sighs> now here's Roy O. Disney standing up by the entrance of the park. The entire future of the company is riding on this thing being a success. See, he watches first, you know, 100 cars come in, and then there's a 1,000 cars. And it's just like, oh, my God, this thing might actually work. <laughs> we might actually make some money. And at this point, a parking lot attendant comes frantically running up to, to Roy, and it's like, Mr. Disney, there are people openly peeing in the parking lot. And Roy smiles broadly, claps the kid on the shoulder, and goes, good, let him pee. <laughs> So I didn't realize that the uh, the parking lot was was dirt back in uh, when it, on opening day. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because the asphalt was going into the park, and what little asphalt they could get up from San Diego. Because remember, they were on strike as well. They were on strike as well. I remember labor actions in the United States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. What's next? Oh, and then we have what CV called Rocket to the Moon, but eventually became known as the Flight to the Moon attraction. Exterior will be complete. We have a good chance on the interior. The big question is, how much time is required to perfect the operation? 
Downside is they didn't make it. Flight to the Moon didn't actually open until July 22nd, 1955, five days after the Dateline Disney special that they did on ABC. Oh, so CPU is actually pretty accurate on this one. He the exterior was. was completed. The interior was pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then they needed time for the operation. So good. All right. Good job, CV. Okay. But they still need to lead people around the park and show off what had been built. So there's this moment where Art Linkletter is interviewing Danny Thomas outside of the the exterior of the still not finished ride. And Danny's like, well, okay. You know, now I'm going to take my kids on the ride. And they turn and walk into the uncompleted building. (laughs) And we don't see scaffolding behind them or two by fours falling down as they walk in. No, we're going to go on this ride that doesn't quite quite run yet. Sure. You just see two nice young ladies who are dressed as, you know, attendants of the moon ride. Just take them far enough off camera that nobody can see you. And we'll wait till they finish shooting and then we come out. There you go. Anyway, Fantasyland, CV tells Wald, castle in the courtyard, the exterior construction will be complete. Which is what you need for the TV show. There we go. Adventureland, we are installing the alligators in the hippo. Uh, We plan on... (laughs) (laughs) Sentences you never thought you'd write in a corporate memo for 400. There we go. But we plan on flooding all of the park's waterways on the 10th of this month, and this is when Walt learned the hard way that you don't build a theme park on top of a former orange orchard. Every bit of water they poured into the waterways just went straight into the ground. They just sucked it up. And so Walt had to go, okay, we need hundreds of trucks of hard clay. We need to bring workers in here to line the beds of both rivers. And only then we can refill. So three weeks behind schedule and another million dollars that Walt didn't have at that time. So Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then... (laughs) Okay, but you need people to make this dream come true. So the hiring program. And so CV tells Walt it is progressing satisfactorily. Our training program is now set up in the Vandenberg House. This was uh, formerly owned by George Vandenberg, Glenn. He was one of the farmers who sold his land to Walt, so he'd then have enough acreage to do his family fun park. The house stood at Disneyland Till the mid-1960s. Again, they kept all the imagination and and the fantasy inside the park. Because the Vandenberg House was painted white, it became known as the White House. Sure. CV goes on to say, we are holding classes daily. Also, all of the arrangements are completed for the processing of employees' medical examinations. We now have 100 employees. We expect to have approximately 550 employees at opening. <laughs> 550? <laughs> that's what about, that's what about uh, 300 times less than they have now in Disneyland? Oh, God. Move a couple of zeros there, Len. But, yeah, yeah, but again, he, but he signs the memo, Woody. And I, just one final observation here, folks. That, so on-site medical examinations for all new hires at Disney. Yeah, that's that struck me as unusual because I don't recall ever hearing that as a standard hiring practice, even back in the 1950s. What I see there, Len, is even back then, the mouse was concerned about making sure that people stayed healthy when they visited Walt's Family Fun Park. So, folks, let's keep that tradition going. Let's wear our masks, okay? That's fantastic. I didn't, I, I've never seen this memo before. This is fantastic, Jim. We did that show, in fact, the band camp about that that memo from 73, and a lot of the stuff that Glenn was asking about, you know, like the, the Persian and the Thai hotel, other pages of that memo actually have dates for those things opening. So we, we really- Oh, we should talk- We should talk about that. All right, let's do it. We'll make that a, a band camp exclusive show for our subscribers. There we go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's regular show, we'll finish up the history of Disney princesses 
in the parks. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's grooming his alpacas for the petting zoo at the Kernersville Spring Folly. And let me pause here to say that I don't make up the names of these things, folks. September 25th to the 27th at the corner of Main Street and Mountain Street in beautiful downtown Kernersville, North Carolina. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.